Many of you were able to hear Shane Wood in the earlier service, and we're blessed to be able to hear him again on the book of Revelation. Uh, So why don't you just bow your head and uh, say a prayer for him as he comes to bring us the word of God. I'm glad to be with you uh, this morning. I, I do realize I'm, I'm a bit, I'm disappointing some people, and I apologize for that, because there is another Shane Wood that some of you are familiar with uh, that went to Ozark and at Link, was at Lincoln. He, te- he taught at Florida Christian College. Now he's up at Lincoln. I had somebody come up to me and were like, yeah, you preached in Brenal, Missouri in 1988. I was like, well, I would have been six years old, so <laughs> it would have been a little awkward. But no, I'm not that Shane Wood. I'm the other one. Let's let's just leave it at that. (laughs) But on behalf of the Ozark family, uh, I want to say thank you. I said this to the first hour, but I want to make sure I say it to both hours. Uh, Thank you uh, for being a church that is not only healthy and strong and impacting Fort Scott, uh, but for loving the mission so much that you even entrust some of your children, some of your to us. Uh, We take that very seriously and are very thankful to partner with you in ministry uh, by training men and women for, for service in the kingdom. Uh, so thank you. But I do want to start off this uh, second session by asking the question, is Revelation a blessing? And the reason why I ask the question is because it is, uh, well, let's look at Martin Luther. He did not think so at all. Matter of fact, Martin Luther, along with the book of James, he wanted to kick Revelation out of the Bible. He even says at the beginning, which is ironic, of his, it's the preface of his commentary on Revelation. He wrote a commentary on it, he just didn't like it. But he wrote a, in the preface, he says, the book of Revelation should be basically gotten rid of because he says, I don't find Jesus in it. And if it's called Revelation, it should actually reveal something. I kind of think it does. But hey, he's Martin Luther. I mean, what do I know? But I asked the question is Revelation a blessing? Because I've literally taught Revelation around the world. And very rarely do I get people come up to me saying, oh, the book of Revelation is such a blessing to me. Usually what I get is people saying things like, oh, I don't know, the book of Revelation, I don't really mess with that. I, I, don't, I, don't really, I don't really touch that book. Matter of fact, I've even had one comment that sticks in the back of my mind and it even drives me to continue to try to teach and to preach on this book. Because a lady came to me once and she said, the book of Revelation makes me afraid of Jesus' second coming. And I was like, oh, something's not right. Because this book claims to be a blessing. Turn to Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Turn to Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. It says, blessed is the one who reads. It claims to be a blessing. Third verse. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. 
Matter of fact, that's the very first out of seven blessings in the book of Revelation. Seven times the book of Revelation says something along the lines of, blessed are the ones who... Blessed is the one who... The sixth blessing in Revelation 22.7 sounds a lot like this one in Revelation 1.3. The sixth blessing in Revelation 22.7 says, Look, I am coming soon. Jesus is speaking. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. But a lot of the times the way in which we look at the book of Revelation, it doesn't lead to the conclusion that Revelation in fact is a blessing even if the book claims it to be one. A lot of times what we get when we come to Revelation is a mess. And here's one of the reasons why I think that Revelation is so difficult for us to receive as a blessing. There's a lot of reasons I could give this morning, but here's the reason we're going to look at today. It's hard to see Revelation as a blessing because we don't know how to define the word prophecy. That's what it claims. It calls itself that more than once. Matter of fact, four different times, Revelation calls itself a prophecy. But in the third verse, it says that. Blessed is the one who reads aloud this prophecy. The way in which we define prophecy... Now, I mean, I mean we in the sense of not just the churches, but even the world as a whole. Even if I'm talking Christian or non-Christian cults, they define prophecy the same way, from the David Koresh's to a Jehovah's Witness to, to our churches. We all define prophecy as prediction. I mean, would anybody totally disagree with that in general? No, by and large, we say prophecy equals prediction. Now, this is something I talked about in the first hour that I always talk about in my classes, just ask any of the Ozark students. But my question will be, but what is the context of the word prophecy, biblically speaking? Context is pretty important to me. Last hour I said, or last service I said, if you take the Bible out of context, you can make the Bible say whatever you want, and that's part of the problem. <laughs> well, how does the Bible define the word prophecy? Isn't that a valid question? What if the Bible has a bigger definition of prophecy than prediction? If you look up the word prophecy, prophesy, and to prophesy in the Bible, every time it's used, and it's a couple of times, if you look up prophecy, prophesy, and to prophesy every single time, less than 17% of the time does it have anything to do with prediction. 17% of the time. It talks about prediction that much, but that means over 83% of the time, it's not talking about a prediction at all. Which tells me on some level this. My definition of prophecy should include prediction as long as it takes up only 17% of the, of the definition. Biblically speaking. I'm not saying prophecy never talks about prediction at all. But what I am saying is, is maybe that's not the main point of prophecy. Maybe prophecy is trying to do something else besides just God playing the cosmic fortune teller in the sky. I mean, whenever God taps a prophet on the shoulder in the Old Testament and says, I have a word I want you to give to my people, it's not like he's saying, because I want to flex my predictive muscle. Because what I really want to do is just to show you, I'm awesome. Because I can talk about things you don't even know is going to happen. No, whenever God says, I have a word I need to give to my people, 
and it comes in the form of a prophecy, it's for two reasons. To prosecute and to persuade a rebellious people. Always. Whether I'm talking Ezekiel, Daniel, if I'm talking Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Revelation, prophecy is meant to persuade and prosecute. Prophecy looks at a people and it says, you've gone astray. You're out of line. And it's time to repent. Every prophetic book demands a response from the audience. Every one of them. And it shouldn't totally shock us from Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Read it again. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and... Okay, the NIV, I don't know what they're doing here with this Greek word. But they put, take to heart. Here's my problem. I don't even know what that means. What does it mean to take something to heart? Like, oh, okay, I'll... Take it to heart. It's kind of like, I mean, I, it's kind of a throwaway. What that word really means, you, other translations will do this. It means something along the lines of heed, or keep, or obey. The New Living Translation says that, obey. Heed. That's the word that we're actually being used there. So let's reread this again. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and obey what is written in it. And here's my question. How do you obey a prediction? You know what I mean? There's an earthquake that's going to happen next Thursday. Obey this prediction. You're like, okay. Yeah. Shane, you're going to die next Thursday. Obey this prediction. It's like, I'll try to stop breathing. Like, I don't. How do you obey a prediction? If all that prophecy is is a prediction, this verse really doesn't make any sense kind of weird blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and obey what is written in it for the time is near the only way that revelation can become a blessing is if we actually understand what prophecy means in verse three if i'm sitting in the pews of one of the seven churches of asia minor the the churches this book was written to by the way and i hear it's a prophecy my first thought is uh-oh uh-oh, someone's off base. God has tapped someone on the shoulder to come and call us to repentance. Because he's got a message, he's got a calling, and we're not living up to it. It's no wonder we don't really want to deal with revelation in the present. Because what revelation is more than anything, it's a mirror that you look into. And it's not always delightful what you see. And so what we'd rather do is just take it thrown in the future, it's just a prediction, then I don't have to change, I don't have to look at myself, I don't have to deal with my own rebellion. If I can hide in the future, I never have to deal with my disobedience in the present. And Revelation says, nah, you don't get away with it that easy. No, we need to talk. So what is prophecy? What, what does it do? How does it function? It doesn't just prosecute and persuade. It reveals at least three things. It reveals who God is, what God desires, and what God demands of his people. Every prophetic book has three main points. Sometimes it includes prediction, about 17% of the time. 
But even if it includes a prediction, it is with the intention of revealing who God is, what God desires, and what he demands of his people. If we reduce prophecy down to just mere prediction, and we think the book of Revelation's whole point is to predict when Jesus will come back, you're going to miss the biggest revelation of who God is, what he desires, and what he demands of his people. A prediction definition of prophecy actually makes three major mistakes. Number one, it ignores the biblical precedent. You want to know the number one metaphor for Jesus' second coming used by Jesus in the Gospels, by Paul in 1 Thessalonians, by Peter in 2 Peter 3, even by John in the book of Revelation. Number one metaphor used for Jesus' second coming, he comes like a thief. It's repeated over and over and over. Matthew 24, Jesus says, coming like a thief. 1 Thessalonians 5, matter of fact, this is 1 through 2, Paul says, about times and dates we don't need to write to you because you know very well that Jesus will come back like a thief in the night. How do you predict a thief coming? I mean, does he schedule an appointment? No, whenever you know that a thief could be coming, what are you, what are you always making sure that you're, that you're doing? That you're always ready. Because a thief can come at any moment. You will have no warning. He's just there. You better have your door locked. You better have your windows secure. You better be ready. And Jesus consistently, throughout both Gospels, Pauline epistles, Petrine epistles, Revelation, consistently, I'm coming like a thief. Revelation 16, 15, Jesus speaks. Is behold, I'm coming soon. I come like a thief in the night. Blessed are the ones that I find fully clothed. It comes like a thief, which means what? You can't predict when this is going to happen. Can I make one plea to you? Just one plea. Please. Please. Stop predicting the second coming. Because this is the second major thing that happens whenever prophecy only equals prediction. Second major pitfall is that it actually hurts our witness. It doesn't just ignore the biblical precedent of the way in which the, Jesus has talked about his second coming. It actually hurts our witness. In my notes, I have a website, a non-Christian website, that lists every single failed second coming prediction over the last 200 years by Christians. And the implication is this. If they consistently get the second coming wrong, they've probably got the first coming wrong too. And here's what I want to tell you very clearly, not just from Revelation, but from the entire Bible. We are never asked to predict. We are never commanded to predict. Matter of fact, Jesus even says in Matthew 24, 36, about that day or hour, no one knows. Not the angels in heaven. Not even Jesus. So stop trying to outdo him. I don't care if you've discovered four blood red moons. I don't care if you've seen the Apache helicopters anew from Revelation 9. I don't care what you think you've discovered. That's not the way prophecy works. Prophecy is meant to prosecute and persuade. And if prediction is even remotely embedded in it, it's to reveal who God is, what he desires, and what he's demanding of his people. And the more we predict, the more it actually hurts our witness. Stop it. 
We've got bigger things to do in the kingdom than predict when he's coming back. Bigger things to do. Here's what, here's, matter of fact, let me use Martin Luther in a positive light. Somebody asked Martin Luther, they said, if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you do? He said, I'd plant my garden today. Because I want to have fruit ready. Here's your job. Not predicting. Your job is to do the work of the kingdom. And do it so diligently that looking up in the sky seems almost foolish. Because there's just not enough time to look up in the sky. He'll take care of that. But you've been given a job. So let's go do it, Christians. Whenever we are predicting, it not only, ex- it not only ignores the biblical precedent, it hurts our witness, and on some level, it even changes the identity of God. I mean, what is he doing? Did he die and resurrect and ascend so that then we can become master cosmic fortune tellers? Did he die and resurrect and ascend so that we could be the kingdom and prince that Revelation 1, 5, and 6 even celebrates? For this was in the first hour, for the communion, it was up there, Revelation 1, 5, and 6. And it said, Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn among the dead. He has freed us because he has loved us through the cross, resurrection, ascension, and he's made us to be a kingdom and priest. That's who we are in him. We're not fortune tellers, friends. We're kingdom workers. And we've got a job to do. Prophecy deals with prediction less than 17% of the time, and so should we. Prophecy reveals who God is, what God desires, and what he demands of his people. And that's the three ways we're going to look at Revelation this hour. We're going to ask the question first, how does, who does Revelation reveal God to be? Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, we see a very interesting addition to the throne scene. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, John is pulled up into heaven. Matter of fact, in verse 1, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet from Revelation chapter 1 said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the, the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne, notice this right here, this verse, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. That's such an important symbol, because this flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder appears three other times in the book of Revelation. Three separate times. The next time that appears, the second time, is in Revelation chapter 8, verse 5. This is at the breaking of the seventh seal. So chapter 5, we have the slain lamb is revealed. Chapter 6, the first, actually the first six seals are broken in chapter 6. Chapter 7, 144,000, great multitude. Chapter 8 begins with the breaking of the seventh seal. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. That's an intriguing, intriguing verse. I'm a questioner. I always ask questions. That's how I think and process pretty much everything I do biblically. And the question that comes to my mind here is, why is heaven silent? Because in chapters 4 and 5, heaven is a rocket. I mean, they are singing. Matter of fact, it even says the four living creatures never stop singing. But all of a sudden, in chapter 8, verse 1, all of heaven grows silent. Why? 
verses 3 and 4. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all of God's people. I love this picture. That all of heaven grows silent when we pray. Because he's sitting on his throne, but, but he actually listens to you when you pray. I mean, he is the creator of all things. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. He is worthy of all honor, glory, and praise because he has created everything and everything is sustained because of him. And yet this cosmic creator stops all of heaven when you pray. Because he listens. Because prayer works. And you want to know what the Christians were going through in Asia Minor? That's one of the things we always do when we come to the book of Revelation. We immediately ask, how does Revelation speak to the 21st century? And we forget it was written first to the 1st century. There were Christians in Asia Minor, and this is their situation. Conflict. The last living apostle has just been exiled to the island of Patmos, Revelation 1.9. And the Roman world seems to be crushing them at every turn. People losing their jobs. People losing their lives. Just ask the city of Pergamum, Revelation chapter 2, where their friend Antipas is killed because of his testimony of Jesus. These Christians were living like the underground church of China is living today. And it is to these Christians that God says, I need to write a revelation. One of the best things you can do reading the book of Revelation is ask, what's it saying to them first? We get to overhear an amazing revelation. And something they would have wanted to know is that when they pray, God listens. God listens. And they also would want to know verse 5. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it onto the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. When is the very first time we saw that symbol? Where was it coming from? The throne? Chapter 4, verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. And after all of the chaos of the four horsemen, after the martyrs under the altar in Revelation chapter 6, after all of that chaos broke loose, all of a sudden he stops and says, but don't forget who's in control. Because even amidst the chaos, if you listen very closely you can hear the thunder begin to rumble and the flashes of lightning. You can hear God's sovereignty. It appears again once we get to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 19, what's happening between then is the seven trumpets have now sounded. And when the seven trumpets sound, all hell breaks loose, literally. Chapter 9, there is what the angel gives the key to the abyss. He unlocks the abyss. The locusts go crazy. It gets pretty crazy, nasty, just out of control. And in the middle of all of this chaos, we have Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. The seventh angel sounded the trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. People in the first session, what do we notice? Yeah, the, one, the is to come is not in there. Why? Because he's there, judging. 
the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Oh, the nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and all your people who revere your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. And the Christians in Asia Minor are going, okay. So, so, so you're still in control. Because Rome's killed a lot of Christians at this point. And Rome looks very much to be the one in power. But what you're saying is, you're still in control. We'll keep reading. He says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and a severe hailstorm. Where was the first time we saw that symbol? Coming from the throne. He is in control. Revelation chapter 16 is the next time we see the symbol. Chapter 16, verse 18. In chapter 16, we have the bowls being poured out. And these bowls are crazy. The bowls, and they kind of remind you of the Egypt uh, plagues. Read the ten plagues of Egypt and compare them to what you find in the bowls. Almost exact. But once he comes to the end of this chaos, once again, we see a very familiar symbol. In verse 18, then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. Every single time we have one of the seven sets of, or one of the three of the seven sets of judgments, every time the seals, trumpets, and bowls comes to an end, it points back to chapter four. Why? Because remember, prophecy reveals who God is. And whenever you're in the middle of chaos, Whenever you're in the middle of your world crashing down, what the very first thing you need to remember is the identity of the one on the throne. That he is sovereign. That he is in control. And that even though you are experiencing pain and things you cannot explain, it is not outside of his sovereignty. This really hit me square between the eyes a couple of years ago in Joplin. When a third of our city was wiped out by a tornado. And whenever you're in a situation like that, a situation of tragedy, the question that is always asked is why? Why did God do this? Or why did he allow this to happen? Or why this family's house get blown away, but that family's house is just fine and they're just right across the street? Why did this happen? And in your own situations of pain, you've asked that same question. That unexpected death. That miscarriages. Why? Let me just say this very clearly. The why question will never satisfy you. We are obsessed with the why. But here's the reality. Even if you were explained exactly why X, Y, and Z happened, you still would not be satisfied. The question you really need to have answered is who? Who is he in the middle of this chaos? Who is he in the middle of the tornado? Who is he? You know that's the story of Job, right? Why is this happening? And what does God say? I'm not going to tell you why, but I will tell you who. Where were you, Job, whenever I laid the foundations of the earth? What's he saying? Do you know who I am? 
Have you seen the heavenly houses, storehouses laden with snow? Have you seen those? Because I have. Who am I, Job? I mean, have you been, are you one of the ones that has helped tame the Leviathan and Behemoth? Because I have. Who am I, Job? Listen, if I can take care of that, trust me, I'm going to take care of this. Trust me, I'm going to take care of it. Because that's who I am. And whenever you're in a situation of rebellion, whenever you are a situation of people that are being crushed under the weight of the Roman Empire, the first thing you need to know is not when will the world end. You need to know who is in control. And Revelation screams at the Christians of Asia Minor that the one on the throne is always in control. And if you look just really closely, if you listen very carefully, you can see flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Prophecy is not just prediction. It's a revelation of who God is and what God desires. Revelation chapter 21 and 22 is where you really start to see what God's heartbeat is for, what he is desiring. And it harkens all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. You see, it is not an accident that the Bible begins in a garden and it ends in a garden. It begins in Eden, and then when we get to Revelation 21 and 22, it kind of looks like Eden all over again. As a matter of fact, one of the key symbols of Eden is the tree of life. The tree of life in the Garden of Eden is what they were in God's grace kept them from. And yet, once we get to Revelation chapter 22, notice what we find. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great city of the, uh, street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Where are we? We're back in Eden. You, know what, you want to know what God's desire is? To restore everything that was broken. In Genesis 3, we have clear things that are shattered. We have the relationship between humanity and humanity. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 talks about how the, the wife will desire the position of the husband. What that's describing is there's going to be gender wars. Amen? <laughs> One of the things I also tell students whenever they're like, oh yeah, you know, men versus women. I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not just men versus women. Men kill men and women kill women too. I was like, you want to have an evidence of this? Just go to a girl's dorm and live there for a week. <laughs> you want to have evidence of the men's side? Turn on CNN. Because when women fight, they may use their words. When men fight, they just bomb countries. Trust me, Genesis 3, Genesis 3 is raging. You see it all around you. And God says, I'm going to put this back together. Genesis 3 describes the shattering of the relationship between humanity and creation. Did you know that fruit was not supposed to just get you from one meal to the next? That the food that the ground produces of God's creation was to minister to all that you are, not just to your hungry stomach. Whenever you were in the Garden of Eden, when they ate fruit, they gained knowledge. Matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 22, it says, and the leaves of the tree will be for the healing of the nations. The emotional healing. Physical, maybe. 
Creation was not meant to be underneath the curse of thorns and thistles, not meant to merely only minister to your growling stomach. It was meant to minister to all that you are because God created it that way. But Genesis 3 shattered that relationship and he longs to put it back together. But the most important relationship that was shattered in Genesis 3 is between humanity and God. And that's why I love, honestly, probably my favorite several verses in all the Bibles, Revelation 21, 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Why does he say that? I think there's two possible reasons, and I think they're both right. First of all, sea in Jewish literature is always a symbol for chaos. Always a symbol for chaos and evil. Daniel chapter 7, the four beasts come out of the sea. Revelation chapter 13, the first beast comes from the sea. The sea is a symbol of, of chaos and evil. Even in the Sea of Galilee, every time they're off the sea, something crazy happens. Because sea is something you cannot control. It is something you cannot contain. It's something that as a good fisherman would know, that at times a storm can come up in the middle of the sea and you can't control and it could kill you. And he looks at him and he says, in the new heavens and new earth, there's no longer any sea. Evil and chaos are gone. But also, remember what is separating John, the minister of these churches of Asia Minor. Their minister has been exiled to the island of Patmos and he is separated by a sea. He says, there's no separation where we're going. He's restoring everything. He keeps going and he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, you can hear the excitement in the voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will be their God. Do you hear the emphasis? He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain. For the old order has passed away. I'm making everything new. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Notice his identity. The beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And I will be their God. And they will be my children. Prophecy is communicating who God is and what He desires. And in the middle of this whole story, from one garden to the next garden, don't forget there's a third major garden in the Bible. And it's the moment whenever Jesus gives in and says, your will be done, and it's at that garden that both gardens are now linked together. With this. With this. And this is the tree of life. Once we get to the new heavens and new earth. And this is what God desires. Once you know who He is and who He desires, then you start to understand more who you are. And that leads to the third point of prophecy. What does God demand from his people? 
Every prophecy demands a response. And Jesus is pretty clear about what he is expecting. Matter of fact, if you turn to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, five out of seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus says the same phrase. Notice it's Jesus, it's in red letters. He's speaking. Verse 2 to the church of Ephesus. I know your deeds. Verse 19 to the church of Thyatira. I know your deeds. Chapter 3, verse 1, to the church of Sardis, I know your deeds. To the church of Philadelphia, chapter eight, or verse 8, I know your deeds. To the church of Laodicea, verse 15, I know your deeds. Jesus says, there's something I want you to do. Matter of fact, to the church of Sardis, Jesus says, I know your deeds. Oh, you have a reputation of being alive. But you're actually dead. He says, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Sheesh. It actually gets worse. Revelation 14, 13, Jesus says this. This is, one, this is actually the second blessing. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. They will rest from their labor, and their deeds will follow them. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. You see, in the book of Revelation, we hear this very clearly, and Martin Luther didn't like this. What you do and what you don't do kind of matters to Jesus. I mean, it does matter to Jesus. And I know what some of you are thinking, and we're getting there. You're thinking, Ephesians 2, I'll get there, just wait. But first, you need to hear this. Your deeds matter. He expects you to do stuff. He's demanding of his people to act like Christ did. He looks at his people and he says, here's the problem. You say you're a Christian, but you're not acting like one. Sometimes I give a silly illustration to my students when I'm trying to explain this point. I'll say, man, my time at Ozark, 2000, 2004, was some of my favorite time ever. The thing I loved the most was playing on the soccer team. Loved it. My favorite thing I did. Being on the soccer team was just the true delight of my heart from my time at Ozark. Now, I didn't play in a game per se, but I loved being on the soccer team. It was great. You know, the smell of fresh cut grass, you know, just the competition in the air. I mean, I didn't really sit on the bench or have a uniform or practice or listen to the coach. I didn't even touch a soccer ball or walk on a soccer field my whole four years at Ozark. But I loved being on the soccer team. It was awesome. I know some of you are like, oh my gosh, the hippie's gone crazy. Like, he's out of his mind. No, I'm not. I love being on the soccer team. Shane, you weren't on the soccer team. Oh, yes, I was. And it was my favorite thing the whole time I was there. That's absurd. About as absurd as saying, oh, I'm a part of the kingdom, I just don't do anything the king says. Just do what I want. No, Revelation says, I'm sorry, you're playing on your own imaginary soccer team. That's just not the way this works. You see, I am a savior. By all means, I'm a savior. You come to the cross, I will set you free to go do what I asked you to do because I'm also your Lord. And when the king says move, you move. 
When the king says go, you go. And if you don't, you may get a prophecy coming your way that says, who am I? What do I desire? And this is what I'm demanding of you. Go produce fruit, Christian. Shane, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You're right. You have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, and there's nothing you can do to earn that. But have you read verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2? The very next verse, context, context, context. Verse 10 says this. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Why did Jesus die to set you free? I mean, think about this. If Jesus died and raised from the dead, what would you not give up to obey the king? What do you have to fight for? Yourself? You know what Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 says? They overcame the dragon by the blood of the lamb and by the testimony of the saints that would not shrink from death. That the Christians, because of the grace of Jesus, were so free from the bondage of sin, from the bondage of death, they could even lay their own lives down for the kingdom to advance. But you weren't saved so that you can be comfortable. You weren't saved so you can go take a nap. You were freed from the bondage of death so that now you have no enemy that can threaten you and threaten the mission. He says, I am sovereign. And I desire to restore everything through the work of Jesus and through the work of his body. This message isn't going to make you a million dollars and sell a bunch of books. But this is the message of Revelation. It's one of the reasons why I think we do hide from this book. is because this message will force you to transform. It'll challenge you to, to change. Whenever you read this book and you commit to actually obeying what is written in it, you cannot help but be different. And it's only in that moment that you can start to understand why this is called a blessing. There's no greater blessing than being so free in the blood of Jesus that even if you're pulled into a back alley or have a gun pulled on you, it doesn't matter what happens, you know that the kingdom's worth it. Even if Rome crushes your whole family, the kingdom's worth it. That the cross does come and says, come as you are, but it will not let you stay as you are. And that is the beauty of the book of Revelation. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, may we have the strength and have the faith to obey. May we have, Lord, the boldness to obey. Father, I ask that you be patient with us. That you be patient, Father, in our wandering. That you be patient, Father, in our struggle. 
but Father, that you pursue us with your spirit that always is creating things new. Father, that you prepare us to be able to fulfill, Father, your, your great prayer that we can help make the kingdom of heaven, your will in heaven, be done on earth because that is, Father, what you've freed us to do. And I pray, Lord, a blessing on this church right now that they will see the prophecy of Revelation anew and that, Father, that they will allow that to drive their mission to the ends of the earth. That, Father, that what happens in the, the meetings in this building, what happens in the worship in this building, even Fort Scott won't be able to contain it, nor Kansas, nor America, Father, but the ends of the earth will be the target whenever you decide to bless this church and this church decides to obey. Father, I thank you for your son. I thank you for your resurrection. I thank you for the peace that you give us that is beyond all understanding. I pray, Lord, that we can embrace that as we embrace you.